You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. Well, it was 20 years ago to the day that we had an impromptu service at the church where Nikki and I were attending. She was actually on staff. I was not. And um, she was one of the admins, and the call, the, the lines were getting flooded with, is Park City's Baptist in Dallas going to have some kind of a worship service? Because you remember after 9-11, the churches got flooded with people uh, looking for answers, looking for something to settle them. And, um, and so to the church's credit, they did. They, they got up the next morning, and they spent all this time, and the pastor put something together. The musicians got together and did something. And we just sort of said, let's open the doors, and we'll see who shows up, and opened the door. And it was a, this huge... Um, a huge sanctuary, big old balcony, probably 1,500 people or so um, just poured in and people were sitting on the aisle, maybe more than that, sitting on the aisles, sitting on the floor and it fit just perfectly in there. And I mean, this is right after September 11th. We're still not sure of the facts, and, uh, but everybody's just sort of hurting and looking for, looking for someone. The pastor, I happen to know him, and he said, you do feel this pressure to stand up and go, I know the world's in turmoil. I'll just speak a few words, and then everybody will you know, start feeling just fine. And he said, you got it. I had to be realistic about it and just preach the gospel. And so it was, so it was 20 years ago. And uh, we had this worship service, and uh, at the, they did a fantastic job with it. And the very last thing they, that we sang together, and this was every voice belting this out, as you can imagine. All the emotions were in unison, thinking about the same thing. And we sang, a mighty fortress is our God. And that last verse, that word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gift are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Amen. And we sang that together, and whereas a Baptist church, it's not a very clappy Baptist church, so it ended, and there was just like this pause, and everybody just, his kingdom is forever. And everybody just sat there, and all you could hear was this little boy go, Yes! <laughs> and we all did that. It was the perfect ending to the whole thing, and everybody just died laughing, and everybody started just, we were still just so emotional uh, about it, and it was a, it was a, a difficult day, to say the least, and um, uh, it was nice to gather with God's people. And really, the issue of 9-11 deals with something called, um, it's called theodicy, and it's really about why is there evil and suffering in the world? And 9-11 is one of the quintessential examples people hold up about trying to understand how do you uh, talk about God being just, theos is God, and DK is justice. How do you have the justice of God in light of what just happened? That was the question that people were asking, and it's a legitimate question, and people have been trying to answer it for a long time. Because the idea is, if God is, um, I'll give you the big words, omnibenevolent, omniscient, and omnipotent, or meaning if he is good, knowing, and powerful, if he's all good, if he's all-knowing, and he's all-powerful, how did things like 9-11 happen? How do these things happen? Or really, why didn't God intervene? Today, what we're going to do is I'm going to talk a little bit um, about philosophy and theology, sort of big picture to answer that in, um, in a practical and theoretical way, but we're really going to nail down practically and then hopefully pastorally as well to try and say not just now we, we have some intellectual answer now that maybe we can make sense of this, but how do we make sense of it in our actual uh, daily life? Because we get, why is there 9-11? Why are we going through 
um, COVID? Why is there ISIS allowed to exist? Why is there hurricanes and floods and sickness and poverty and I mean, all the way down to um, why did my neighbor's house burn down? Why did I lose my job? Why did we get this diagnosis? Why, why me? Why her? Why him? That's where we're going to go with this today. So we've got this, the problem here is that you've got, um, is first of all, you have evil and suffering exist, and so we need to come up with some kind of answer. Like, let's just grant the fact that evil and suffering exist, that, are, that there is evil in the world, there are bad things that happen in the world, and so we got to figure out a way to, to address this. And so philosophers and theologians have tried to do this for quite some time, and the first one that people go to is to say, well, maybe God is not one of these, maybe he's not all-loving, he's not all-powerful, he's not all-knowing. Let's just remove one of those because if he's all-knowing, so he knows what is happening, what's going to happen, what will happen in the future, if he is all-knowing and he's all-powerful to stop it and he loves and cares, then these things wouldn't happen, so let's just remove one. Maybe he's not that loving. Maybe, he, maybe he, it took him by surprise. Maybe he's not powerful enough to do something about it. But I, I would submit to you, at the end of the day, that just leaves you hopeless, Oftentimes what happens is, is we ask, like this one, we ask the question and go, I don't see how God can be good, loving, and powerful, and this stuff happen, and then we don't replace it with anything else, and so we're just sort of wandering in this hopeless mystery of just trying to figure out what do we do in light of the reality that these things do happen. So I'm going to actually flip it a little bit and give you another way to think about it today. Instead of saying God is not all-loving, all-powerful, all-knowing, instead of having to remove one, just add one. And I'm going to give you a couple examples. If we can find these three things to be true and find one more morally sufficient reason that evil and suffering exist, then we've solved the equation. So in other words, what I want to show you is God is all-loving, all-powerful, and all-knowing, but there are still morally sufficient reasons that evil and suffering exist in the world, but it doesn't hinder those three things about God. Let me give you, let me give you three of them. These are the big ones because philosophers will try and wrestle with this as well. One of, this, one of them is called, um, it's the theory of antithesis, it's called, or antithesism, if you ever want to say that. Um, it really just means opposite. And what it means is, why does evil exist is so uh, the, the opposite reveals the other thing. How do you know what is hot? Well, we know what cold is, so therefore we know what hot is. If all we had was hot, all we would know, we wouldn't call it hot. We would just call it the temperature, and that's it. But we know hot because we know cold. And so people say, well, you the only way you know um, you, you know pleasure is you know pain as well. The only way you know good is you also know evil. And it kind of, you know, for Christians, it kind of makes sense because I, we do know that the world we live in, being broken and fallen as it is, is supposed to make us yearn for a better place. It's supposed to make us yearn for a time when all that will be done. And so in a sense, this, this can make a little sense. It's, it, doesn't, it doesn't help fully because then you just ask the question, well, why is so much evil necessary? Like if you, if you look around at what's happening, why doesn't, one, one philosopher says, why do we have the Holocaust instead of just a hangnail? Wouldn't something, like wouldn't God give us the minimum dosage of pain in order to go, ooh, we don't like that and therefore we know what pleasure is, we know what goodness is, we know that. And so even though there's a hint of, um, of Christian thinking to this, because we do, when we see the pain here, it does make us think about, gosh, it'll be glorious one day when we're with him. It's supposed to make us long for a better place. It's not a full answer to it, or certainly not every circumstance. The second one that comes up a lot of times was put forth by a guy named John Hick, a philosopher of religion. He's the first guy I saw that said it. Um, he has something called soul-making theodicy 
or um, <clears throat> character building is the shorthand way to think of it. It builds our character. He says, the harshness of life gives us a robust texture and character that wouldn't be possible without an imperfect world. It's the what doesn't kill you makes you stronger kind of philosophy. And for us, you know, I look and I go, boy, the times that I grew the most were times that I was walking through really difficult times. It does build character. The book of James talks about this. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. You know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Trials tend to be where we grow. That's why helicopter parenting is bad. That's why spoiling our children is bad. We're not teaching them resolve to be able to grow up and deal with tough circumstances themselves. I saw an interview with the actress um, Gwyneth Paltrow, and she was explaining something, kind of the double-edged sword of being famous. And she said, when you're famous, people start to remove obstacles for you. You'll walk up to a restaurant and the line's out the door. People have been trying to get a uh, get a reservation for a long time and they're waiting hours. She walks up and they see her and so they go and they set a table out for her. She said, you never get a speeding ticket because you get pulled over and someone goes, can I see your, oh my gosh, Gwyneth Paltrow. And then they just want your autograph. And she said, what happens is when you get famous, people start pulling um, the friction, she called it, pulling the friction out of your path. And those are the places where we really grow. And so this is another possible thing. When Sometimes when a heartache hits, man, maybe it is, maybe God's in there trying to grow us in some way, but it doesn't always work. You can't always just say what doesn't kill you makes you stronger because sometimes it can actually take your life. It can kill you. I, had a, um, I did a funeral one time for a little boy and we, um, we announced his age in days. He was that young and um, there was nothing that I could give to that couple when they were asking about why this happened that said somehow this built his character or this was good for him. They're not hearing that. So there's part of it that, could, that might be the case in certain circumstances, but it doesn't answer in every circumstance. The third one, this is the most common one, is called the free will argument. Why does evil and suffering exist? And we say free will, and the way a lot of philosophers sum it up is God maximized the goodness in the world by creating free beings, and being free means we have the choice to do evil, a choice that some of us exercise. I'll say it again. God maximized goodness in the world by creating free beings, and being free means that we have the choice to do evil, a choice that some of us exercise. This helps give an answer to things like 9-11. This helps give an answer to why everybody locked their car doors and you lock your, your doors at your house. Because we know that there are people that will come and do evil things. So that helps with something we call moral evil, but it doesn't fully address the question because you've got this thing, natural evil. That doesn't explain hurricanes. That doesn't explain um, some of the poverty in the world. That doesn't explain uh, earthquakes and things like that. And then the other thing it does, if you really take free will out to the extreme, it can almost feel like what happened is God created everything, gave the earth a good spin, and now is just sitting back until it's our last day on earth, and then we join him. It's like he's not active and engaged whatsoever, and that's not at all a biblical teaching. God is present and active in the world today. So how do we deal with it? You've got this idea, is God loving, powerful, and all-knowing, and everybody says he can't possibly be all three. And I would say, when you look at the scripture, he absolutely is. He absolutely is. We have to start there and just think, maybe there's another morally sufficient reason why some kind of heartache happened. Maybe it was because something that somebody exercised their free will for evil. Maybe it was to build character in moments. Maybe it was... Um, 
that we would love him more and really sense our need to be rescued from this world to the next. Let me give you my my summary of a theological answer. Every inch of this world is stained by sin and we're guaranteed to have inexplicable trouble after inexplicable trouble. In those moments, we can rest in the fact that God is all-knowing, meaning he sees your needs and knows better than you do. He is all-powerful, able to help in our time of needs, and he is all-loving, meaning he's caring enough to have our requests not fall on some divine deafness. Instead of living in loneliness and fear, God providentially gave us each other so that we might bear one another's burdens, and he gave us the cross that points us to a greater future that is assured. The troubles here point to a time when all will be set right. Remember Narnia? Aslan is the the God figure in it. C.S. Lewis writes, Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter shall meet its death. When he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. The short answer is that our world is broken and fallen, everything in it, the people in it, um, our feelings and emotions are fallen. This is why we don't just go, um, whatever you feel you should do, it's because we know that we have sin. Our world is stained by sin. All Nature is stained by sin. That's why we have hurricanes and tsunamis and all those different things that happen. We know we live in a broken world and it won't always be this way. That is the hope that Christians have. This is not our eternal home. And in the meantime, he gave us two things that we're gonna focus on. He gave us the church and he gave us the cross. Job chapter one. Let me explain to you the, um, the, the story of Job. And this is where I'd like to also try and take from that theoretical to now talk about, there might be people that are walking through something right now, or you might know some people that are walking through and wondering about where is God in the midst of this. Job chapter one, I'm gonna show you a specific example of a guy. Um, he was faithful to God and everything was taken from him. And he remained faithful. Um, It says he was blameless and upright. He feared God, turned away from evil. And it says he had uh, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. So he was the greatest of all the people of the East. He was righteous. In fact, um, uh, what he did, they would offer sacrifices. His um, sons and daughters would go and party and he'd go, I don't know if they sinned or not. So he would just preemptively offer sacrifices in case they sinned while they were there. So this is a really, really righteous guy. This is one of the oldest stories in the Bible, perhaps even one of the first ones written. And, um, and in Job 1, Satan goes one day to stand before God. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going, going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on all the earth. This is God affirming Job. There's none like him on all the earth. A blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Blameless, upright, fears God, turns away from evil. Very righteous man. These are the words of God. Then verse nine, then Satan answered the Lord and said, does, God, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. In other words, I know why he loves you. It's because, uh, I know why he's righteous. is because you gave him all this stuff. And because you gave him all this stuff, he's gonna worship you. And as soon as that stuff is gone, he's not gonna worship you anymore. That's the showdown that's about to happen. He says, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. 
And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand, only, do, only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out in the presence of the Lord. Now the subheading of the next section of this incredibly righteous, incredibly wealthy guy is Satan takes Job's property and children. It's about to get real. Here we go. Verse 13. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and, he, who, uh, and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of a sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. So I picture uh, Job and Mrs. Job sitting out on their porch. And I see them sitting there rocking and looking out at everything. And they've got servants running everything. They are righteous before God. They feel good before God. They've got plenty of stuff. And all of a sudden they look out in the distance and here comes a, this messenger running up to him. There's, there's one of our messengers. I wonder, one of our servants. I wonder what he needs. Comes running up to him, and then he goes through, and then the first thing that happens is he says, the oxen, the donkeys, and the servants all died at the hands of the enemy. I'm the only one that survived to tell you. This is being on that vacation, on the beach, loving life, thinking it doesn't get any better than this, and then the phone rings, and it changes your life. But it's not just one. He says, excuse me, I have another call, and look what happens. While he was yet speaking, while that messenger was speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. One guy comes up, says, this is gone. As he's still speaking, another guy comes up and says, oh, this is gone. While he was yet speaking, now messenger number three comes up. There came another and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold... A great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. This is call waiting four times, and everything he has is now gone. He went from this great life, this righteous life, this faithful life, to all of a sudden devastation in an instant. That's the story of Job, and we watch his faithfulness throughout the rest of the book. But you know the American response to this. How could this possibly happen? And especially if it happens to me, my first instinct is to go to God. And I would, if I were Job, I feel like my first response would be, uh, excuse me, God, I am righteous. You, in fact, said that I was righteous. And I thought that being righteous, I, you and I had an understanding that I would do for you and then you would do for me. That's the conundrum that we have here. Why in the world would this happen to Job? And underneath it is something that I think is a flawed way of thinking. And here's what it is. It's that our merit somehow buys us divine protection. That our merit somehow buys us divine protection. If we are just good enough, then it uses the term about putting a hedge around Job, then there should be some kind of hedge around us and nothing can ever hit us and nothing can ever hurt us. And so some people live their whole Christian life. I gotta be good. I've gotta do the right thing. And if I do something for God, then God is obligated to do something for me. That's the way we think. Like I want to earn the things that I get. If anybody could have ever said that, it would be Job. My merit should have bought divine protection. If I do right by God, he does right by me. Just a couple quick thoughts. Please don't ever tell God to give you what you deserve. That's not a good starting point. 
all right? The second thing is this. I, I would also just encourage you to deepen your understanding of the gospel, because if you think about it, we were on a collision course with hell for all of eternity, and God looked down and reached down into humanity, sent his own son, demonstrated his love, sent him to the cross, this humiliating, painful death. He died, and then he rose victorious over sin and death. And what we do is we look and go, we are sinful and we're broken, and I put my faith and my hope and my trust in Christ, and I spend eternity with him, and I'm in right relationship with the Almighty. And then to go, but I want a lot of nice things too. Sometimes one of the things that I have found, at least this is true for me, is sometimes when things have hit me in life, it is God trying to unpry my hand from some idols in my life so I can fully savor him. I love what I get to do. I love my job. If I lost my job for whatever reason, my job's gone, but my identity is not. My, my world is not. My reason for living is not. My job's gone. But my, the thing I savor above all is Christ. So that would be our response. What's Job's response? This is, this is incredibly important to understand. It says, then Job arose, he just got these messages, and tore his robe and shaved his head. That's grief. That's repentance, that's sorrow he's feeling, and fell on the ground and worshiped. He's grieving as he worships. Look at this. And he said, naked I have come from the mother's womb, naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let me tell you how incredibly important this is, that the gospel does something in these moments that nothing else can. The gospel says that you can weep while you worship. Everything else says you can only do one or the other. You can just weep when something hits. You can just let the emotions hit you, and you can just spiral, spiral, spiral downward. You can be known for whatever this past, uh, this past hurt is in your life. I was married, and he left me, and um, you know, my husband left me. I'm just going to be a, a, a bitter old woman my entire life. My father passed away and I don't understand it. And so I'm just gonna live just wondering, going, why God, why? And all I'm gonna do is I'm gonna feel the emotions and that's it. That is a downward spiral that we can get stuck in. Or the other thing can happen is um, we just ignore the emotions and we go, and we just jump over here. And we just go, everything's wonderful. Just, you know, PTL, just praise the Lord. And I know the, my world just fell apart, but everything's good. God's in heaven, God's good. And this person is going to need years of therapy someplace down the road because there are emotions that need to be dealt with. And so our world says, are you gonna be this kind of person or are you gonna be this kind of person? And what you see Job do is he just breaks down and he is just weeping and he's hurting. But he says, it says that he worships. The gospel is the only place that this comes together, that we can fall down before God. We can cry and we can know he's listening and he cares He's also powerful enough to be present and to help us through whatever we're walking through. Amen. He knows the future. Let me just sum it up like this. Um, <clears throat> how does this look? How do we actually weep while we worship? How can we be those people that when the hard times hit, we can let as what, whatever emotions need to come to come, and then how at the same time can we never question, never be shaky in our relationship with the Lord? How, how do those two things happen? He's given us two things. God gave us the church and the cross. God gave us the church and the cross. Colossians chapter two, it says this. It's talking about the church. Listen to the description of the church. See if this sounds like 21st century American church. 
Spoiler, it does not, all right? This is what it's supposed to be. Um, In Colossians, it says, holding fast to the head of the body, that means Christ, from whom the whole body, the whole body of Christ, the local church, is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. The way it describes the church is as a local body, that we are arteries and veins and, and um, what are the, I don't know any other terms, joints and ligaments. I'll go back to that one. We are all these parts of the body that are so intertwined together, and Christ is the head of it, and he has left us with this church. So as we have to walk through those times, you don't have to do it alone. Every place else Every, any other institution, any other person, any other relationship at some point can say, you need to do that on your own. A grown parent could say, yeah, you're, you're a grown up now. You need to do that on your own. A kid, sometimes we look to our kids like we're hurting and our kids need to lift us up. That's not the thing for a kid to be doing at a certain age, excuse me, when they're very young. Um, in your business, if something happens, it totally depends on your, on your boss, doesn't it? Totally de- depends on policy. Hey, this just happens. I need, to, I need to take a couple days off. That's fine, but you need to take them with pay. Like not necessarily compassion of walking with you, but the church of Jesus Christ is where we're supposed to have primary relationships in our life. Amen. I think this <clears throat> would speak to those that um, all that happens, and I'm not talking COVID right now. I know it's throwing a wrench in things, but we need to be present to experience this. We don't have a big strategy of being coming an online church someday. We broadcast so if people are out or if people are not able to gather, they're able to get online and they're able to watch. But normative is that we are a part of the church. It's not an information dump every, every week. We are part of the church. I think about, you know, for me, for a long time, we were at a huge church. And I remember being anonymous and then kind of thinking it was the church's fault that I was anonymous and didn't talk to anybody. Can I just tell you, if you're here and you're going, I, that sounds really good. I'm not, I'm not real sure like what to do and where to go with that. Um, you might not be the person that wants to just wander into Fellowship Hall after the service and just walk in not knowing anybody and stand here like this. And I hope some, you, know, you feel like the kid getting picked last on the dodgeball team or something, just kind of looking around. But maybe Fellowship Hall is the place to go and to go up and to say hi to somebody. Or maybe it's after the service, just saying hello and just getting to know somebody. Or maybe others in here that do know people, when you're in Fellowship Hall, if you see somebody over there in the corner with their coffee like this, don't overwhelm them, but go over there and be the church to them and, and welcome them. It might be the thing that happens. In fact, that might be the most important ministry that happens on our campus is people with a good EQ, if you know what that is, to go and interact with others. Meaning if somebody is not really wanting to talk, catch that and just go, thanks, well, I just wanted to say hi and leave. Don't overwhelm them, all right? Get to know people. Get to know people in the local church. Amen. It's vital. And to those here who, um, who might be in a spot where you're going, this isn't hypothetical, this is, I have some questions about God and is he good and is he loving and why is this happening to me and in my life, um, I would like to say, I would encourage you to use the church. And what I mean by that is this, one of the biggest tragedies in the church is people are hurting and don't tell anybody because somewhere along the line, we have said in our culture that you need to be a big boy or big girl and you need to figure it out on your own. And to go and to say, I would love to talk with somebody about this is difficult for people to do because we're prideful Americans. Can I just tell you one of the most beautiful things about Rockland is we have people that are so, so good at sitting down and just having whatever kind of conversation you want to have so you don't have to be alone. 
right after the service today. We're gonna be, we got the Romania table in Fellowship Hall. We have another table in there as well. And if you're somebody right now who's walking through this, your step to take is simply go up. Pastor Paul's gonna be over there. Some others will be over there and just say, can I talk to you this week? Can we, can we connect over email? Can we connect over the phone? Something like that. Right after the service. Don't let another day go by. Let the church be the church to you. And then... <clears throat> Um, for those that are in a good spot right now, for those that are not hurting right now, maybe some of you have a, have a way you're gifted to be some of those people that can make phone calls, that could get some really serious training in how to help people when they're going through serious grief called Stephen's Ministry, something like that. Um, the same thing, the same table that's for them is for you to walk over there and just go, I, I can help. How can I, what, what do you need and how can I help? If you have a heart to do those kinds of things, go over there and just, just explore, just figure out what that is. That's how we become the church. I had, um, at the same table, excuse me, at the same table, we've got, um, got an opportunity. We've had a lot of people ask about small groups. We're not gonna cold call the entire congregation and ask if you wanna be in a small group. You gotta walk over there and just say, I'm curious about being in, what Bible studies do you have so I can get to know some people? That's gonna be at the exact same, there's one table for everything. Just go over there and just whatever's going on, just tell Paul and he'll deal with it, all right? They'll figure it out. We want to get people in those groups. I, I had my group met at my, I have a small group we're in. We met at my house last night and with everything going on in the world, it's been, I, I keep saying it's been a really hard week. I feel like I could say that every single week lately. It's been a, just a, a tough week for our nation and we were there with this group of people and uh, I left just cloud nine. Like I left so just uplifted at being with these other Christians and if you were to say, well, what did you talk about? What, what happened? I would have to go, well, hang on, let me, I, I don't even know if I remember exactly what we talked about. There is something, excuse me, about being with other Christians that is uplifting. Amen. And instead of waiting until the rug gets pulled out from under you and then go, oh my gosh, now I've got to get back to church. I don't really know anybody. Now I've got to get to know somebody. Now I'm going to get in a group of people. I'm going to get in some community. Think about it. While all your emotions are raging and you're going, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to weep. I'm trying to worship. I don't know how to do this. Instead of going, and I'm all by myself, start now building those relationships. Start building those relationships. Become tight with people here. And then when the rug gets pulled out from under you, all of a sudden you're not alone. And you're not having to learn, how do I go meet people and build relationships? You've already got them. And you press into those relationships to help you. God has given us the church. Isn't that a remarkable thing? That he has given us other believers in our, in our lives who are going, we're not perfect either. We're sitting down with you. You might be walking through something because you made a terrible decision. And I can look at you with no judgment and just bask in the grace of God. And he has given us to walk through life together. And the second thing is this. He's given us the church and he's also given us the cross. The cross says he's all-knowing because he's he was wise enough to make a way that none of us would have ever dreamed up. Let's, how about this? God can be triune and the first person of the Godhead will send the second person of the Godhead to the cross and he'll die to pay the price for sin and his wrath will be appeased. Like we would never invent that. And God is all knowing and he's so dang smart. He sees us, he knows what's going on. He knows the beginning from the end and he is looking and says, this is the way to do it. And so he came up with this way to rescue us. He is all knowing. He's all loving. He sent his son to go through that on our behalf. And he is all powerful because we know that the tomb was empty and he he won. Amen. He intervened in history. He's doing so now and will do so again one day. When you don't have clarity, always remember that there is the church 
and there is the cross. God's always working in the background. You guys remember um, Pastor David is a pastor now in Dallas. And um, uh, if, you, if you've only been here a few weeks, um, you may not have met him, but he, um, he's a pastoring in Dallas now, and we launched him six, eight weeks ago, something like that. And it was, it was, we were sad because we love him, but it was also a time of joy, and he's going on to this calling in his ministry. And do you know why that, that happened? Was because the pastor at the church where he's serving now died of COVID. And do you know why he decided to be a lead pastor, how God worked in his life? Is because I got COVID on Easter Sunday. That is not a good time for a pastor to be laying there on Easter Sunday going, I can't walk across the parking lot to come and be with these people that I love. And so I had to go, hey, David, I need you to preach Easter. And he was sort of thrilled I had COVID, I think, to be honest. Um, And what happened was God used that to move him to the next phase of his ministry. God's always working behind the scenes. It's not dumb luck. It's not just fate. It's not chance. It's God. I'm here today because... uh, 20 years and a day ago, my wife called me as she was headed to work, and she said, turn on the TV. And I turned on the TV, and I looked up, and I went, oh, my goodness. I was a guy who was working at IBM. I had left um, full-time to finish my MBA in international business, which I did. And so I'd left my job, didn't have a job. We didn't have kids yet, didn't have a job. And I left to go get my MBA, and that's when September 11th hit. And so now all of a sudden, uh, I remember looking at the TV and going, I don't know what this means, but I know everything is changing. And I went from, I'm going to climb the corporate ladder. I had a Spanish degree as well, MBA, international business. Oh, I'm IBM. I'm, I'm, I'm fine. I'm set. And um, nothing came to pass. It was at least a year of just constant rejection. And my wife, Nikki, was so wonderful through the whole thing, but just constant, constant rejection. And we were at that church I mentioned earlier, and I was just volunteering with the, some middle school boys leading their small group. And um, the youth pastor said, do you want to you know, work here more? And I'll, I'll pay you a little bit, and then I know I get you. And I said, yeah, that's fine. I can do that. And um, I said, but I'm not going to be here very long. And he said, that's fine. So he, we did. We did it for a few months. I was still looking for a job, couldn't find a thing. Um, and, um, and then he said, I've got another job, but... It'd be full-time. I need you to commit for a while. And I said, yeah, that's fine. I'll, I'll go ahead and do it. I went and talked to Nikki, and I said, what do you think? And she was like, yeah, you should do it. Go do it. You love it, and you'll be great at it. And, I, you know, go ask. I talked to some other guys, and I kept saying, yeah, but I'm supposed to make a zillion dollars. That's what, especially where I was, it's like, that's what a man does, you know? And I went, I talked to these other men, and they went, they went that, that's what I'm doing. That's what God has called me to do. What has he called you to do? And he reminded me of the goodness of God, that God has a point and a purpose for our lives, that he's saved me and redeemed me. And it was clear as I started talking to him that I was called to ministry. And so uh, I I told, his name was Pike. I told Pike, the youth pastor, I said, I'll do this a couple years and then then just know I'm not going to be here anymore. And um, I was there 10 years served as the middle school pastor, served as the youth pastor, did a whole bunch of other stuff, got to preach, um, went to seminary and got ordained because 9-11 changed everything. God's always working in the background. And if you're like me, if you think about what they did is God used the church to remind me of the cross and what he has done. God alone can take something awful and make beauty out of it. Trust in him.
The cross says that God is with you and he gives us his church to remind us. And when there's not clarity, there is the church and there is the cross. Never forget that. 